Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family, Father, in the unity of the faith. Thank you for the inspired Word of God, Father. Thank you for inspiring us with it, through it, by it. Thank you for revealing to us the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you for your patience as we take it out to a world that uh, just seems to be accelerating away from Him, Father. May we not be discouraged, but always remember that with you all things are possible. Father, we pray for those in our congregation that are not able to be with us for illness' sake and that uh, you will be, your will be done in their lives. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We just ask, uh, we're so grateful, excuse me, we're so grateful, Father, also for the work that your Son has done on the cross to our benefit 2,000 years ago so that an evening like this even becomes a reality for us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Uh, just fantastic sense of, uh, set of principles um, behind us already. Uh, and just sharing here, as I was listening to our evangelist teach a mini-series that I'm convinced was near and dear to his own heart. What, kept, what I kept hearing when I was listening to that three-part series was an undercurrent, and it was this as follows, um, at least in part, and it may not have been ever stated this way in any of those lessons, but this is what I heard, and this is a theme that I've been hearing from this pulpit by means of the Spirit for quite a long time now. Um, what is heaven to you primarily? Is it a destination, in other words, a place that's not hell? who wants to go to hell or is it a place where you can fellowship with the Lord forever and ever what is it is it a destination or is it where you get to finally be with the Lord and that's the distinction that's one of the under or the overarching themes of our lessons what is salvation but deliverance from this to this from the sovereignty of sin to the sovereignty of Christ is it a destination to you or is it a reality? Is it a place of fellowship that your hope rests in? And frankly, this has been a theme uh, in my own heart for a very long time. And as for the sake of clarity, I want you all to know that even though for, I don't know, I think it was about one and a half years, starting back in October 2015, we covered the gospel of Jesus Christ in great detail much of what the Spirit's been fighting against from this pulpit as of late, almost ever since then, is the idea of a false profession of faith. And I think people get confused about that. Um, I think that there are even people outside of this ministry that are confused about what we're doing in this ministry and what the Spirit's been saying as of late that we've been fighting this idea of a false profession of faith. It doesn't mean that everybody, uh, we should be questioning everyone. It just means that there are what we would call, what the Bible calls, false professors. And we ought to understand that they exist in this world. 
and that we're going to fight against uh, letting such things be as if it's okay, because it's not okay. And I was thinking about that theme. Just about every book that comes to my mind in the Bible speaks of false professors. Read any book. There's always someone saying this or that, and God's saying no. Whether it's the likes of, say, Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, or those Jesus' brother James pointed out in the book after his name, or it's the type of false professor that Jesus dealt with when he said, I never knew you. The Bible is chock full of accounts of false professors. And we've been fighting this. That's the whole point. We've been fighting this. So just remember the context. So you have to step back and ask yourself why God the Holy Spirit authored the Bible the way he did. I mean, how is it that false professors are even recorded in the Bible? And why so often does the Bible record accounts of false profession? And we're supposed to be what? So flippant or so uh, easy that we're not going to teach it? The very real presence of false profession in the churches? Would we not be remiss? So I was thinking about that. Though the good book is indeed relatively thick, it's not all that big when you think about the immensity of our holy God. So the Spirit inspired many passages, taking up what we might call precious real estate in said book for this one particular topic. There's quite a bit of real estate taken up in the Bible on the idea of false profession. So again, the question then is why? I mean, if, you know, the book, I know it's a thick book, but it's not, you know, you know what I'm saying. Every word in here is precious. And there's an awful lot said about false profession. So you have to ask yourself why. The answer is obvious, of course, and it's akin to why the Lord Jesus Christ spoke seven times more often about hell than heaven in the Bible. Here's what I'll give you. False profession is a very real danger. <laughs> a very real danger. This has been the main artery supplying our lessons over the past year or so. That's the context of our lessons. And I think some people miss it. False profession is a very real danger. This has been the main artery supplying our lessons over the past year or so. The Bible tells us that there are many false professors, including teachers, in this world. For example, this is just a really quick smattering. Matthew 7.22, Luke 3.8, 18.9-14, 9, 9 Romans 10.1-3, etc., etc. I mean, it's just passage after passage after passage on this topic. Throughout our studies as of late, we've seen all of these passages. But just to drive the current point home here, let's look at this last one. Go to Romans 10.1. Romans 10, verse 1. Again, false profession is a very real danger. And this has been the main artery supplying our lessons over the past year or so. The Bible tells us that there are many false professors, including false teachers, in this world. Romans 10.1. 
<clears throat> Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's what we would call a false professor. It does not matter if someone says, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Big deal. So do demons. So do demons. They're the ones who said, remember, Lord, what do we have to do with you? Oh. Big deal. False profession is a very real danger. And shame on uh, the multitude of ministries out there that do not deal with it for whatever reason. And I'm not here to judge. So maybe in retrospect, you see your pastor as having, I don't know, heard a slightly different bent on the three-part series the Spirit gave us this past week. And that's perfectly fine. Even expected, frankly, given my spiritual gift. But even so, I want to encourage you to see what I see, big picture-wise, because it makes all the difference in the world, as was stated in our mini-series titled Plainly Stated Doctrine in the Book of Acts, up here on the board, on this topic of big picture. The New Testament letters were written years later to the very same churches the apostles founded and built in the Book of Acts. Galatia, for example, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, etc., the churches were often addressed in defense of the gospel and or affirmation of it. In other words, the assumption, as I've taught you, the assumption is that they had been taught already. And someone was either doubting or attacking that church. And so Paul, in a very narrow way, would write a letter and say about this topic. You even hear him say these things. About this topic, etc., etc. About this thing. Yada, yada, right? That's normal. That's totally normal. And, that's what, and that's the, that was the beauty of studying the book of Acts, is you actually saw what the early church, the, the uh, proposition as it went forth from Jesus Christ himself to build up the, the church, what it looked like in terms of activity. You know, Acts, activity, same root word, activity. What it looked like to take the gospel out. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. This is what it looked like, and this is what we talked about. One of the things happened to be repentance, of course, as we've been learning. Faith, believing, water baptism, a lot of things. And those things are not to be confused with what was being taught in the epistles decades later in some cases. So I, for one, had a blast listening to these lessons from the book of Acts. I believe that in many ways God designed we humans to learn most readily from what professional curriculum developers would call OJT or on-the-job training. I think most of us learn best that way, and that was, I mean, we're God's creation. Most people can learn some academics, but unless you actually apply those theories, if you would, or the academics themselves to life itself, you never really grasp it. You never really get it until you go out there and do it. And God designed us that way. 
And so it's really nice to be able to see people doing it in the book of Acts. Not just pontificating about this doctrine or that doctrine or this attack or that attack on this thing or that thing. It really drives things home to look at the activities in the book of Acts. If you recall our lessons titled, Why the Apostles So Encouraging, one of the key themes was that Jesus not only equipped them with academic principles, a.k.a. doctrines, he said essentially, now take the things I've taught you out to the streets and apply them to real life situations. That's what he did with them. He would sit them down, he'd teach them, and he'd send them out. And he'd come back, oh, we screwed that up. If you only had the faith, if you only had this much faith. Why couldn't we do that thing? Because you lack faith. You see what I'm trying to tell you? Boy, on paper, we knew what faith was. Boy, on paper, we knew exactly what you wanted us to do, Jesus. But then it came to doing it, and we went, poof. Apply them to real-life situations. And this instigated this side note that really is our lesson this evening. I didn't know what he was going to have me teach on, but it ended up being a side note in a, in a sense uh, an offshoot, if you would, of the mini-series we just got off of. So here's our side note. This is our entree into it. I have found that one of the hallmarks of false professors is their in- inability, and I'm speaking biblically. I'm, not even, I'm talking about what the Bible has to say. Not only have I seen it, but I'm talking about what the Bible has to say. One of the hallmarks of false professors is their inability to do anything that brings glory to God. Read the Bible, that's what you see. A false professor never brings glory to God. They're always trying to bring glory to themselves. What must I do to have eternal life? Give me that, I'll even pay you for the Holy Spirit. I want that power. It's always bringing glory to themselves. And then it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that's what we do sometimes when we forget, when we lose our way. And you can see it with other people as well. We're not to judge, but uh, we're given some space at least to judge accordingly or righteously when we see things that are awry. I've taught you that. So I've found that one of the hallmarks of false professors is their inability to do anything that brings glory to God. They have no problem directing glory to themselves. For example, religion like the Pharisees and the Remember the Pharisee pointing his nose down at the breast-beating tax collector in Luke 18? They have no problem bringing glory to themselves. Look at me, I pay tithes, I do this, I do that, I keep the commandments. They have no problem with that kind of glory-seeking. But they never actually do anything to God's glory. And yet, some of these people are members of, or maybe even leaders in, ministries that make this one look like a speck on the map. Some of the largest ministries on the planet do not teach the gospel. They teach some perversion of it. I guess what I'm saying is the following, at least in part as we progress. False professors, one of the hallmarks of false professors is a distinct inability to apply, inability to apply godly principles in their own lives. 
unconverted people still abide in their sins, seeking their own glory despite using all the right language and performing religious acts. Again, that's false profession. One of the hallmarks of false professors is a distinct inability to apply godly principles in their own lives. Unconverted people still abide in their sins, seeking their own glory despite using all the right language and performing religious acts. And you know what? Jesus had a zero-tolerance policy regarding such things. He had a zero-tolerance policy regarding such things, and so did his disciples in the early church. And therein lies the crux of the problem, my friends. Today's so-called Christian churches are riddled with spiritually impotent people pretending to spread the good news about Jesus. Yet all they are equipped to do is bring glory to themselves, their church buildings, their ministries, you name it. But they are not equipped to do anything to the glory of God because they are spiritually impotent, unable, unequipped to do that very thing. That's what we see in the Bible. And many of these churches and ministries are well-versed in Holy Scripture. But you know what? Even Satan is likewise well-versed, isn't he? Take any pastor you've ever known, television, personally, it doesn't matter. Satan would bury them in Scripture. Bury them. It would be embarrassing. So it can't be about being well-versed in Holy Scripture. Let's read a couple of passages now just to drive this little sidebar home. Go to Luke 11.39. Luke 11.39. Again, this is, like I said, the crux of our lesson tonight is really a big giant sidebar. Something that just sort of percolated out of our lessons over the past week or so on plainly stated doctrine in the book of Acts. 11.39 in the book or the Gospel of Luke. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. Excuse me. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. And then Jesus goes off, railing against these awful people. And what I want you to see is the essence of the point on the board. Again, he's dealing with false professors. These are the religious people of the day. If you were a betting person and you didn't know anything about Christianity proper, you'd say, well, they, might, they must be the, you know, the ones in the know because they look the part and they speak the part and they had all the language and things memorized, and et cetera, et cetera. But like I said, Jesus had a zero-tolerance policy for that kind of garbage. Again, one of the hallmarks of false professors is a distinct inability to apply godly principles in their own lives. Unconverted people still abide in their sins, seeking their own glory despite using all the right language and performing religious acts. And again, as I said... Jesus had a zero-tolerance policy for false profession. 
The only difference between Jesus and the rest of us, if we're to compare ourselves, is that he was able to actually see the truth about someone's salvation where we cannot. We never have that right. We can never say, oh, this person saved that person. But he could. He could see it. And when he spoke plainly about situations where he said, you guys are obviously off in la-la land on this. You don't have me, therefore you don't have eternal life. He knew. And that's where we find our principles, many of them. However, as I've tried to impress upon you over the years, and I want you to listen closely to this, really closely, when a guy like me, me, you can use me specifically, gets fired up or angry even, it's directed at the reality that false professors exist, that false doctrines and false teachers exist. That's what I'm indignant about. It's not about a particular person. You might say, oh, he's talking about my uncle, or he's talking about me, or my neighbor, or my brother, or my sister. I'm not, stop being so arrogant. I'm not talking about you or anybody else in particular. There may be people I wonder about, but I never tell you about them. When I get indignant from behind this pulpit on the topic of, say, a false professor, it's about the fact that they exist and nobody seems to be talking about it. That's what I'm indignant about. That everybody wants to play pretend. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about hell, I weep. I don't want my worst enemy to go to hell. So yeah, damn straight I'm pissed off about people going to hell. Oh, I'm sorry, did I ruffle your feathers? There are bigger problems in this world than your pastor offending you with his language. Do you understand? You see how that goes? People are more offended. I guarantee you, the people that are protecting people with that kind of garbage thinking are the same jerks that are offended by my language. Get your priorities straight, people. Stop throwing stones at people that actually love enough to teach the truth. That's the problem. Everybody's a whitewashed tomb. Everybody wants to play pretend. Nobody actually wants to call out what's actually going on in this world, which is disgusting and decrepit and foul like a sewer pipe. And everybody's going, yay! They're on their blow-up tubes. Like it's one of those uh, water country, what do you call that thing? The lazy, oh, see, you guys are sick. The lazy man river, right? Wee, splashing each other with sewage, playing pretend. I have no tolerance for it. See? My Lord didn't have any tolerance for it. Why the heck should I? Why should you? So when I get fired up, like you just kind of saw a little bit of, I guess, understand that I hate those things with a passion because they are fostered and propagated by the God of this world, Satan. And they are meant to keep people from the truth. But what I am not doing ever is supposing I know exactly who I'm speaking to when I speak of false professors. How the heck am I going to know? I suppose if I knew, I'd probably stay up all night, in a way. I don't want to stay up all night. I stay up enough. So please remember this always, lest you judge me and my intentions terribly wrong. Okay, back to Jesus railing against said false professors. If there's anybody in this world that could say, 
you, my friend, are a phony. It was him. Agreed? Okay. So can we just, let's read this. Luke eleven forty two. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and ruin every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. There's only one person on this planet that could ever say that with absolute certainty, and you just read it. It was Jesus Christ. Yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And then we see what happens anytime we call an arrogant person to the table with truth. You know what an arrogant person does? And we've all done it. They lawyer up. They lawyer up. Let me, let me help you with what I mean by this. When confronted with truth, arrogance always lawyers up like its father, the devil, always looking for loopholes and ways to twist the simple truth in order to justify itself in its ungodly deeds. That's what I mean. Arrogance always does that very thing. You hit arrogant, or arrogant person even, with the truth from Holy Scripture, the first thing they do is lawyer up. Lawyer it up. They con- when confronted with truth, arrogance always lawyers up like its father, the devil, always looking for loopholes and ways to twist the simple truth in order to justify itself in its ungodly deeds. This is what I see every time I try to evangelize an arrogant person. They pull out a litany of so-called reasons why I'm wrong about my beliefs. And they ask all kinds of questions to try to trip me up. And they think they're being slick with their corner cases and such. This is precisely what we see after Jesus offended the group set before him. Look at it, verse 45, what do we see? Who actually spoke up? One of the lawyers said, <laughs> of course, right? Whoa, 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 mister. Let's, let's talk about this. Let me, let me lawyer with you a little bit. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm the most tolerant man on the planet of false professors. I'm so sorry I offended you. Is that what he said? Whoa! Not like, whoa, Nelly the horse. Whoa! To you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves would not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You are a phony. You're nothing but a guy trying to usurp my father's sovereignty in this world. You're just like your father, the devil. I will be like the Most High. I'm above it, everybody else. You all, you little plebes over here, you serve me. So there it is, the crux of our little sidebar right in front of us up here on the board again. One of the hallmarks of false professors is a distinct inability to apply godly principles in their own lives. Isn't that what Jesus just said? You don't even lift a finger. You put all these burdens on people, but you don't do anything. 
Was the lawyer here concerned about his life? Check this. Now, just think about this. Put this into perspective. Was the lawyer here concerned about his life, his disgusting life, insulting God? Or was he concerned about the life of God insulting him? <laughs> Do you understand the arrogance here? He's like, you just insulted us. This is the God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ in the flesh. You just insulted us. The audacity of arrogance. It's all about this displacing God. Arrogance usurps God's rightful place as sovereign with itself. Unbelievers do this by default. That's what they do. I'm the captain. Captain, oh captain. I'm the captain of my ship. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. I don't need God. As a result, they bear fruit after their own root system. If your root or vine, let's call it, system isn't Jesus Christ, then you won't bear his type of fruit. Rather, you will bear fruit after your flesh's father, the devil. And remember, if the devil was here, you'd be attracted to him. Which means that the fruit that these people bear is actually attractive. It's actually tasty on the outside. It's attractive. Do you understand? That's the whole point. It's not readily identifiable to the ignorant. Look at verse 47. He continues, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses, and approve the deeds of your fathers. You see, they're only able to do after their own kind. They do things, but just they don't do to the glory of God. That's the running principle so far this evening. Because it was they who, was, who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. And I love this last statement from Jesus in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And it just reminds me so much of today's lawyering. You know, well-intentioned law writers, people that pass bills that become law, that whole thing, they're human. They can only do so much. There's a spirit behind what they're trying to encapsulate in the written law. Fair enough? And if you're an honest citizen of a, of a country, you're trying to find the spirit of the law and abide by it. And if you abide by the spirit of the law, then the letter just naturally works itself out. Fair enough? But if you're a scumbag, and if you're a lawyer, especially like these ambulance-chasing idiots that are on television like 24-7, you're not looking for the spirit of the law, are you? You're looking to find the loopholes, just like Satan. You're trying to lawyer up. You've actually taken away the spirit of the law. Look at what does Jesus say. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Up here on the board. The key of knowledge. The lawyers had frustrated others' access to the truth. Although they outwardly professed loyalty to the word, inwardly they refused the one of whom Holy Scriptures spoke. They weren't interested in the word, capital W. 
Jesus Christ. They were interested in the letter of the law so that they could master it, twist it, and enslave people, even though they're not willing to actually lift the finger as per the spirit of the law or the spirit of the word. They didn't want the word, in other words. They just wanted knowledge of it in the sense that they could use it for their own devices. And Jesus had no tolerance for it because those are what we call false professors. You might know people like this. They'll browbeat you into submission. They may know more scripture than you. They may know, think they know more doctrine than you. They may think they know more than you, period. Even about Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. But they don't have the love that you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not even close. Not even close. And you might have one or two favorite verses memorized, and that's the end of the story for you. And God is pleased with you. And he's disgusted with those people. That was the problem. And Jesus had no tolerance for it. The lawyers had frustrated others' access to truth, although they outwardly professed loyalty to the word. Inwardly, they refused the one of whom Holy Scripture spoke, Luke 11.52, comparing that with Acts 28.25-27, Matthew 23.13, Hold your thumb there. Go to Acts 28.25. Acts 28.25. Some of this has come out in our lessons as of late as well. Remember I taught recently on uh, spiritual hearing and that while people's eardrums vibrate, they don't always hear. They don't have the key to understanding, if you would, or the key of knowledge. Acts 28.25 when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit, he said, rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but, you, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. Because you know why? There's a difference. Excuse me. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Well, that sounds an awful lot of like what's been coming from the pulpit for the last few months. And understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. We call that repentance. Back to Luke 11.52. Luke 11.52. Again, woe to you lawyers. I did say hold your thumb, right? Didn't I? Uh, Luke 11.52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. Again, the point on the board, the key of knowledge. The lawyers have frustrated others' access to the truth. Although they outwardly professed one thing, they were phonies. To summarize, here's that final verse up there on the board, Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You have the key to knowledge. You have the key to the kingdom right in front of you. You claim to have it. You've got so much of it memorized. But then here comes the Messiah, and you don't even see who the scripture's written about, and he's standing in front of you. 
It's unbelievable. That's what Jesus said. He's like, this is disgusting to me. You guys, you guys are bragging in the streets, trumpeting your awesomeness. And, and you rot. Your aroma is stinking. All right, let's finish up with this little sidebar now with another passage. Again, the instigating principle up here on the board is this, on faults, professors, and again, remember how I started off this evening. This is what this pulpit has been preaching against for a very long time. And it's not a popular topic, and that's the problem. And people get goofy and they take things out of context even. And I pray that you don't. I pray that you understand what the Spirit's trying to say. He's saying there are many, many accounts in life of false profession. How do we know? Because the Bible's chock full of them. One of the hallmarks of false professors is the distinct ability to apply godly principles in their own lives. Unconverted people still abide in their sins seeking their own glory despite using all the right language and performing religious acts even. And as I stated earlier, Jesus had a zero-tolerance policy for false profession. He put up with a lot of things. What do we see? We see him eating with prostitutes and tax collectors, right? And he, quote-unquote, ate with them. He had a certain tolerance for the weaknesses, for their own sinfulness, while he tried to convert them. But he had no tolerance for people who said, don't you worry, I'm already righteous. He had no tolerance for that. What do you do with that? I can work with a prostitute. I can work with a tax collector, especially the one who's on his knees beating his breast saying, have mercy on me, Lord. But I can't work with the jackass who's got his nose up in the air looking down at that same person who I'm about to save, who's going to go away justified. What am I going to do with the arrogant person who thinks they're righteous? They don't even know they're sick. So he had no tolerance for that. Why would he have tolerance for it? Why would we have tolerance for it? That's the whole point. If our Lord didn't have tolerance for it, why in the world would we have tolerance for it? That's what he's been teaching us from this pulpit. There are boatloads of people in churches every Sunday morning, maybe even during the week, I don't know, I'm assuming. They're not even saved. And nobody's saying anything. And they're acting all religious, and they're acting all whatever, you name it. And everybody's like, yay! I can't do that, knowing there are people in this world that are going to go to the lake of fire for all of eternity. It's not a hundred year sentence. It's not even a thousand year sentence. It's eternity. Put that into perspective. The next time you brush off the Holy Spirit's unction in your soul to go straighten something out in someone's life, to go evangelize someone. Remember that Jesus had no problem establishing the simple fact that a saved person actually does things to God's glory. 
as he stated in his parable of the soils. A saved person actually bears fruit. So let's keep our eye on all of the activity we read about in the following account. Go to Matthew 11.1. Matthew 11.1. We just came off of the book of Acts, which by its very name depicts action, activities, acts. So let's keep our eye on activity as we read Matthew 11.1. There's so much going on in here, but try to filter through it and look at I'll try to help you out. Look at the activity. Matthew 11.1, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in in their cities. Did you just see that? Jesus went off and did something. Imagine that. He actually spread the gospel. He didn't just go back to the synagogue and go, let me teach you some more of the Old Testament. Sit right down here. Let me teach you some more stuff. No, you know what he did? He actually went out and and preached and taught the gospel. He said, you guys, this is how it's done. These are the principles. These are the doctrines. Go. I'll go over here. You go over there. Jesus Christ. Imagine that. He was an actual doer. Can you imagine that? He was actually a doer. He actually got off his tush and actually did something. Or, which one? Which one are you? You're a talker or you're a walker? He departed from there to teach and preach in their city. See, enough said. Verse 2. Now when John the Baptist, while in prison, heard of the work of the works of Christ, you see that? The works of Christ. He sent word to it by his disciples and said to him, Are you an expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report. Is that an activity? You see it? Yeah, go do something. <laughs> do you understand? Go do something for the kingdom. Go to John and put him at ease. Go do something. Do you know anybody that needs to be talked to? Go do something. The blind receive sight, verse 5, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel. What? Preach to them. Go do something. Go preach the gospel. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out uh, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, but... What did you get? Uh, go out to see a man dressed in soft cl- uh, clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. You know what that means? He went out and did something for the kingdom. He, you see, I send my messenger out to what? To actually do something. We're not supposed to be bumps on a log. That's the whole point. But that, that was the lawyers, you see. That's the polar opposite. The lawyers put heavy burdens on everybody, and as Jesus said, didn't even lift a finger. Truly I say to you, verse 11, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. I just taught on that before I left on vacation. If you have ears, who gives you spiritual hearing? God does. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and did not dance, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners or prostitutes. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Even wisdom does things through her possessors for the kingdom. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom knows the difference between intellectual snobbery and ivory towers and actually people like John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul who actually did things for the kingdom. Didn't just give lip service for the kingdom, actually did things for the kingdom. That's why I share the, the India thing. Not everybody contributes. Maybe that's not in your heart. That's not the point. The point is to do something to help spread the gospel. These people are thirsting, literally and figuratively, spiritually, for the word of God. They're thrilled just to have tracts given to them that they can hand out in villages. Thrilled. We got people rolling them up and smoking them. Look at the difference. There's a lot to be done in this world to the benefit and to the glory of God. That's wisdom. And wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And in your case, in my case, what that might mean is, you don't believe me? Go out and do something. And see if the word of God's right. See if you're blessed. See if Jesus was a liar when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. See if he's put it to the test then if you don't believe me. Stop being such a greedy putz. Spread the wealth a little bit. I know, right? Welcome back. We want Scott. He's so soft and cuddly. And he's got the WKRP in Cincinnati voice. Too bad. You got me. I'm the shepherd. That's wisdom, though. Wisdom speaking to you right now. Wisdom does things for the kingdom. Now, here's another turning point in this passage that really highlights so much of what's been coming from this pulpit over the past few years. Look at verse 20, Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they what? Did not repent. He denounced them. Does that sound like he's saying, hey, it's all good, you didn't repent. Come on in the kingdom. Because the gate is really wide. Nope. He said, I've given you more ministry than any other city around. Shame on you. That you did not repent. Up here on the board. Jesus denounced the cities that were abundantly blessed with his personal ministry. Chorazin, Bethsaida, 
Capernaum, to whom much is given, much is required. Unbelievers in these cities were stubborn, arrogant, unrepentant. Jesus had a problem with that. I can work with a tax collector or a prostitute that's willing to repent, that's willing to listen. I cannot work with someone who's unrepentant, who's arrogant, who's stubborn. I cannot work with that. Do not cast your pearls before swine. If you've given somebody the gospel 99 times and they're like, there are 99 more people waiting for your time that need to hear. Don't waste your time on the same person all day, every day. Stop perseverating on the, the, the bum loser. I don't mean to say it the wrong way. I hope you know what I mean. The arrogant jackass that doesn't want to hear about the sovereignty of God or about their own sinfulness. Jesus did it. What did he do? What, did I say that? Isn't that, that in Scripture? He denounced the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Denounced them. Said, bye-bye. <laughs> he said, bye-bye. Because they did not repent. Look at verse 21. He says, woe to you, Chorazan. Uh, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more, ter- more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, to whom much is given, much is required, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Those are strong words. That's how much Jesus despised unrepentance, arrogance, stubbornness. At that same time, or at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Up here on the board. Revealed them to infants. Jesus uses the arrogant crowd's own definitions of wise and intelligent versus infants to thank his father for his sheep. Jesus praised his father for imparting judicial blindness to the arrogance. It's not that Jesus didn't want. Remember, Jesus wept when he saw things like that. It's not that he wanted people to go to hell, but he despised this kind of arrogance, this unrepentant person, so much that he said, thank you, Father, for upholding your justice with these people because it's the right thing to do. Because you are sovereign, you are righteous, you have every right to sentence these people to the lake of fire. And in that sense, I praise you. Jesus praised his Father for imparting judicial blindness to the arrogant. Verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then the end of our little sidebar wraps up with the famous words of our Lord and Savior. And aren't they oh so much sweeter in context? 
Verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I was thinking about that. Maybe as we close here, the burden of life, the so-called burden of life, the yoke of arrogance is impossible. That's why people in this world that do not have Christ are so frustrated. I would argue, now I'm not a doctor, so please don't take this out of context. I'm not saying there aren't legitimate cases of uh, chemical depression. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I personally believe that a lot of people are depressed because they don't have Christ. And if they had Christ, they wouldn't suffer the way that they suffer. And maybe just maybe they wouldn't need um, the, uh, the, chemical, the chemicals to get them through the day. They wouldn't need that form of um, self-medication. And again, I'm not a doctor, so please don't take that the wrong way. I just think that a lot of people are depressed in this world because they don't have Christ. Because arrogance is impossible. You can't even see. Do you understand? Jesus Christ just thanked his Father for imparting judicial blindness. It means the Father said, you're blind then. If you're going to be that arrogant, you're totally blind. If you're going to be that arrogant, you hear nothing. It's like being, imagine, it's like being, uh, what was her name, the one that was? Helen, Helen Keller, thank you, Anthony. Ooh, you look really smart over there. It, Helen Keller, right? Imagine being Helen Keller, smart and deaf. That's an that's unbeliever. I mean smart and deaf. Blind and deaf, thank you. Blind and deaf from birth. That's an unbeliever. Do you think it was frustrating for her? Do you think it's frustrating for an unbeliever to try to make sense of life? Do you think that's a burden? I think so. I'm kind of psyched that I have the ability to hear the Word of God, to hear my shepherd's voice. I'm kind of excited about that. Not only that, I'm really excited to be able to see things that I see from vision given from above. I can't imagine being without my spiritual hearing and my spiritual sight. I can't imagine it. What that would be. It'd be horrible. You think I'd be depressed? I'd be on every pill imaginable, I think. Why not, right? I mean, what, 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 do you, what do you have? There's not even any hope in this world. There's no hope. That's, all, that's like the big word. I don't know about the rest of you. I'm digressing a little bit. But for me, that's what I see in this world. There's no hope. Because nobody has Christ anymore. And even the churches are not teaching him. They're teaching another gospel from another spirit about a different Jesus. It's not, his name is Jesus, but it's actually not Jesus. It's not the Jesus that, that did not tolerate false profession. It's not the Jesus that had no inclination whatsoever of accommodating man. It's not the Jesus who said, oh, since it's grace, it's going to be easy for you to be converted. That's not him. It's another one. Another one. A little wormy, pasty one. That's got no strength whatsoever. No resolution. No connection. No sense of burden on behalf of his father. 
to uphold the sovereignty of God. That's not the Jesus that's taught behind pulpits in the average Christian church today. That's not, no, it's, it's, it's some other like weak person. The Jesus in the Bible is not the one that's being taught from so-called Christian churches on average nowadays. That's the battle that I'm fighting. That's the battle you're fighting. There are an awful lot of false professors who are still burdened. Do you get it? They're still burdened. The yoke of arrogance is impossible, depressing its wearers. Contrarily, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. With God's power, all things are possible, Matthew 19, 26. Without it, nothing, that nothing brings glory uh, to him. Without it. Oh, there we go. With God's power, all things are possible. Without it, nothing that brings glory to him is. Nothing's able, do you understand? Anyone sad? I am. I'm sad for this world. Truly and utterly sad. And I'm pissed off at the so-called Christian churches out there that are not teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and keeping people in bondage. And shame on any one of us who allow and just sit back with a tolerance that Jesus Christ did not have. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege and this honor of gathering together this evening to be made ready to be made right, to be equipped for the Great Commission, Father. Thank you for the privilege of taking these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs them so desperately. We just ask for your blessings as we do so. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.